Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 29, and it's on page 1756 of your uh, Bibles that are in the pews, or it'll be on the screen behind me when I get this sorted, sorry. So Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, Only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, 
Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. Well, like I said earlier, it really is uh, a great pleasure to be here uh, together and in particular to be opening up such a a wonderful part of God's Word, which, as we've just read, um, presents a a bunch of really big ideas and perhaps some of them um, fairly challenging and uncomfortable. So how about we pray that God would help us to listen to Him uh, really well. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word that you help us to know you that you also help us to understand ourselves, that in it all you point us to Jesus and both our great need of him and our great joy in him. We pray that you would help us to listen well to what you have to say to each of us this morning and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're spending these next few weeks working through Romans 9 to 11, as you as a church here have been working through Romans from start to finish. Uh, and there's a lot in here. It, it does sit together fairly well as, as, a, as a chunk, these three chapters. And there's a bunch of big ideas. There's also a whole host of things that, that take us back to the Old Testament. And for some of you, if you've not been reading the Bible for very long, it would be quite understandable if you've come away from our passage this morning and thought, gee, there's a whole bunch of names here that I'm not sure where they fit. There's, there's a bunch of bits that have been indented, which kind of says they're quotes, but it's hard to see how they connect and where they come from. Um, we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning unpacking some of that because it's actually helpful for us all to see the context and how it connects together. For some of you that might have been a Christian for a while, you read a chapter like this and you might recognise that it raises a whole bunch of big theological ideas, things that people have debated uh, over the centuries. Whatever your situation, you don't need to worry that we're going to be here until dinner time working that out, both the background context or the big theological ideas, because there's actually something really simple for us all to hear from Romans chapter 9. A lot of its practicalities will play out not only in the next two weeks but right through to the end of this wonderful book. But in particular, for all its its richness and its complexity, Romans 9 forces us to deal with one very simple question. Is this a God you want to trust? See, you've just spent recent weeks working through and unpacking the glory of the gospel. The good news that God sent Jesus to rescue sinners like you and me from a fate that we were powerless to rectify and to offer us a life that is better than we can imagine. In the pages of Romans 8 that have come immediately before, we sort of see how that incredible news puts everything into perspective. Even the sufferings and the hardship of life, they're held up in contrast with the present confidence that we have that God is here with us and the future assurance that we have that we will be with God. And Romans 8 finishes with these wonderful words that you can see on on the page there if you're keeping your Bible open, which I'd really encourage you to do as we work through this passage together. From Romans 8, verse 38 and 39, Paul summed up this, this wonderful glory of the gospel and God's promises, saying, I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a remarkable promise. Incredible confidence. 
nothing is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet Romans 9 is all about the hard questions. And I hope that there's a question that starts to sort of roll around in your mind as you reflect on that promise. Because this promise is wonderful for those who know Christ Jesus as Lord. But what about those who don't? If you have Jesus, then you have the very great assurance of Romans 8. It leaves Paul, as he writes this letter, grappling though with the gut-wrenching reality of those who don't have Jesus as Lord. And this is anything but a hypothetical for him. This was the reality for his family and friends, uh, for those that he had known and loved as close colleagues and respected teachers. Paul, writing this letter, writes as a Jew, a leader amongst Jews, a teacher of Jews. This was a very real and personal and desperately sad question for him. Do you see his heart that comes through in the first five verses of this chapter? Let me read just those opening lines. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. You see, Paul's a Jew. Yet as he looked on at most of his fellow Jews, they had rejected the claim that Jesus was the long-awaited, the the prophetically anticipated saviour king that they were all longing for. They've turned their back on him. And for all of the beauty and the comfort of the assurances of Romans chapter 8, Paul's heart aches to know that so many of his own people, his family and friends, those that he grew up with and worked with and studied under and taught and mentored, so many of them have turned their back on Jesus and therefore turned their back on the glorious promises that Jesus offers. And how it aches. Do you see, Paul's kind of, he's falling over himself with repetition in those first few verses that we kind of gloss over, but I want you to, I want you to grapple with his heart in verse 1 and 2. I, I speak the truth, I'm not lying, he repeats himself. My conscience confirms it. Through the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You see, there's nothing flippant or superficial about this. Paul's heart aches for those who don't know Jesus. Even to the extent that right there in verse 3, he, he basically says that he would be willing to give, give up his own seat on the bus if it meant that they could get on board. If only he could be their substitute. Swap places. That's his great desire. And yet he can't be their substitute. Jesus alone can save and Paul's already made it abundantly clear that Jesus alone can substitute his life for ours and yet that offer has been rejected by his friends. And as we read this this morning and we think through the the reality of that question for Paul and his fellow Jews, I wonder whether we need to think through too that aching reality, that, that I wonder whether we appreciate the beauty of the promises of Romans chapter 8 and everything that came before it, if we don't share Paul's aching concern, the gut-wrenching tragedy of those who don't yet share in these promises. And so, 
very simply from these opening verses, I want to ask if you share Paul's heart for those who don't know Jesus. Or do you have a niggling suspicion that maybe they're not that bad at all? Perhaps they're not that stuck after all. I mean, they're great friends, lovely people, kind and thoughtful. Perhaps as you sit here this morning, you're thinking, well, there's a lot of talk of us and them, but maybe these are questions for you. As you consider whether you have Jesus, whether you trust in him. And see, that's exactly the problem. You see, the, the people that Paul's heart breaks for are, are good people. People with all the right credentials to expect that they would be on good terms with God if only we were able to make ourselves on good terms with God. But as we've already seen in Romans, this is the tragedy of religion. And not just the formal structured religion, but the basic idea that I can earn right relationship with God. Any assumption that we've done enough good or have the right pedigree or do the right rituals, none of that joins us to Jesus and all that he offers. But there's another layer to all of this for Paul. You see, his concern isn't just for his likeable family and friends because he loves them dearly. But in verse 4, we read a whole list of the credentials that marked the Jews out as God's people. There was no other group of people on earth that could that were described by God as his own children. As we read there, they were descendants of Abraham. They were recipients of ancient promises from God of, of blessing and life as it was meant to be. And so if these people, Paul's fellow Jews, if they've turned their back on God, well, does that raise the possibility that God can't be trusted after all, that his promises don't stand? You see, all of the assurances of Romans 8 are based... Therefore, on well, is it a vain hope that God is in control and stands by his word? Because if he's so in control and yet his own chosen people haven't chosen Jesus, then can he be trusted? That's the nub of the issue that Paul addresses, whether God can be trusted to save anyone when it seems that he can't save everyone, not even the Jews who he's given these great promises. But to help us grapple with this question about God, Paul starts by challenging an assumption that we all have about ourselves. And to get our heads into that space, I want to ask if you've ever bogged a car. Have you ever found yourself in the the mud or in the sand, pumping the accelerator, and all you can feel is is the wheel spin and the sound of mud and gravel and rocks being flicked up against the, the bottom of the car? I've been bogged a few times and, well, it's at times like this that you kind of get that sinking feeling and you're like, what is it going to look like when I open the door and I step out and I, I check out just how stuck we really are? Um, is it going to be like, well, you know, just chuck a few rocks in front of the wheels, maybe get the shovel out and move a bit of sand around, shove from a mate and off we go, a little bit more gas and we're away? Or is it more like this on the screen behind me? Sunk to the diffs in soft, sandy beach, the tide coming in fast. Now that's really stuck. Not my car, photo off the internet, but gee, that's stuck, isn't it? How stuck are we really? You see, Paul begins 
to deal with the big question about whether God can be trusted by first unpacking another question. How stuck are we? And he begins by showing us that no one deserves God's mercy. Let's have a look at it from verses 6 through 18 together. You see, in this block, Paul uses two pairs of illustrations to make his point that God is absolutely trustworthy. We just need to recognise how badly we've bogged the car. We really are that stuck. And this is where a whole bunch of Old Testament context is helpful for us because Paul's speaking and within mind the Jewish people. And so it's helpful to unpack some of their story to make sense of this. You see, first Paul starts with undisputed territory for his fellow Jews by affirming the idea that, well, just because Abraham was your great-great-great-great-grandfather, that doesn't mean you're automatically a recipient of the promises of God. The Israelites were fine with this. This was a concept that they were very comfortable with. Indeed, they were even proud of it because it's what set them apart from other people groups who could also trace a family lineage back to Abraham. I've got a very simple diagram, a family tree that we can work through that helps us follow through the stories that Paul is alluding to here from verse 9. It all begins with Abraham. See, before him there was no such thing as Israel, there was no such nation. He was just one guy living in what we now know as modern-day Iraq, just an ordinary guy until God made him a promise. And so this is actually the first illustration that Paul gives in verses 7 to 9 of Romans chapter 9 where Paul alludes to the remarkable promise that God gave Abraham that he would have a son who himself would be the father of a great nation through whom the whole world would be blessed. Now that's remarkable enough but it's made even more astounding when you remember that Abraham was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was postmenopausal. Things were going to be difficult. But you know what strikes me is, it's kind of interesting, is they seem to be able to handle the idea that they're going to have a son who will bless the whole world. They sort of take that on board. But they struggle to trust that God could use their aged bodies to do it. And so in this really sordid tale of kind of polygamy and the abuse of a vulnerable slave girl, Abraham gets Sarah's servant Hagar pregnant and she gives birth to a son Ishmael. Only as the story unfolds, God makes it abundantly clear that while Ishmael is biologically Abraham's child, his conception isn't in keeping with the promise. As Paul quotes here in verse 7, he quotes from Genesis chapter 21 that it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And Isaac, God had promised, would be the son of infertile postmenopausal Sarah, the impossible child. As we read in verse 9, At the appointed time, God said, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Okay, so that's that's Paul's first example here in Romans 9, the first generation of this family tree right back when God made his promises that not all of the descendants of Abraham can claim the promise given to Abraham. And the second generation is like it. That's the second illustration he uses in verse 10 through 12 where we read the next generation where Isaac's wife Rebecca falls pregnant with twins. And as verse 11 sums it up in Romans chapter 9, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, she was told the older will serve the younger. But did you notice that Paul also kind of gave us some insight into God's purpose behind that? It was in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls. You see, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob and his descendants could never claim superiority over Jacob's brother Esau and his children. It's not on the basis of anything within themselves. It was simply because God was kind to choose them. And so Paul's first point was, wasn't that contentious for the religious Israelite who traced their lineage through Jacob. They understood not all Abraham's descendants in the family tree inherit the promises of God because it's God's prerogative to choose. That's fine. We've got the promise. We're fine. It wasn't contentious for them, but it is contentious for anyone who has some sense of natural justice. That each person should get what they deserve. And, and Jacob could never have claimed that, that he was more deserving of God's promise than Esau. And so because Romans 9 is all about dealing with the tough questions, in verse 14, Paul's question isn't a hypothetical. It's a natural, very real question. Is God unjust? Because the natural response is, yes, he is. one level, this is the very definition of injustice, that you've got two equally deserving people and one gets blessing and the other does not. That's our natural concern for justice. But did you see Paul's response to it? It's jarring. Is God unjust? Verse 14, not at all. And so he continues with another two examples from Israel's history that even as we read through this, they might not seem so obvious to us if we're not familiar with the Old Testament, but not only are they less obvious, they're way more uncomfortable. Let me point them out to us. In verse 15, Paul recounts that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, at one level, those words from God to Moses, they sound simple enough. But their original context helps us to see just how profound this is. Um, I think our Bibles here have a little footnote there down to the bottom that says, well, this is quoted from Exodus chapter 33. You see, if we go back to Exodus 33, we see that God said these words to Moses after Israel had turned from worshipping, sorry, turned to worshipping an idol of a cow that they had made out of gold, which is bad enough. But what made it even worse is that this was immediately after God had saved Israel from Egypt in the dramatic and the miraculous rescue of the Exodus. The story is told in the book of Exodus that the evil Pharaoh of Egypt had been defeated and God's chosen people were finally set free from their slavery and yet no sooner had they been set free to worship God then they got impatient, they got frustrated, they turned away and set up an idol of a cow to worship. Moses was furious when he found out. And God's righteous indignation was aroused. The very people that he had made his promises to, who he had now rescued, turning the other way to worship idols. At the very least, he would have been justified to have left them there to their own sinful selves. Actually, if he were to act justly, he would have been entirely justified to have destroyed them then and there. 
They deserved his wrath. They had taken his kindness and power for granted and they'd turned to a pitiful alternative of the one true God. And as a profound summary of his grace and his freedom to save those who do not deserve to be saved, God said these words to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I get to choose and I choose these people. So in his mercy, he did not destroy Israel. In his mercy, he didn't abandon them. Now that's challenging enough that actually the Jews who held to their promises were being reminded that actually they were the unfaithful party. That's challenging enough. And Paul reminds us of the single greatest episode of unfaithfulness by God's people and yet shows us God's incredible mercy towards them regardless. But he actually notches it up even further by contrasting it with Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh was the evil oppressor of Israel that they'd just been rescued from. And, and Paul quotes in, in this section that we just read in verse 17 from, from a, few, a few chapters earlier in Exodus where we read of God's purpose in demonstrating his power to all the earth through his victory over Pharaoh. And by putting these two people side by side, you know, the Israelites as they've walked away and Pharaoh, the quintessential bad guy, the ruthless oppressor who had enslaved the people of God, you, you couldn't cast a more heinous villain in the history of Israel than Pharaoh. And yet here he is standing alongside the Israelites before God. And Paul's point is that they're actually both entirely undeserving of God's mercy. The only thing that makes Israel any better than Pharaoh in this story, as Paul points out, is it's God and his power to provide his mercy. Both of them deserved God's wrath. God chose to show Israel mercy. And that's the heart of the gospel, that we have all bogged the car royally right up to the axles and the tide is coming in fast. None of us are able to rescue ourselves. We are all dependent on God's mercy. A relationship with God is only made possible by his freedom to exercise his mercy. It's not just that we don't deserve it. It's that we actually deserve the very opposite. We're entirely dependent on God to choose us, for we cannot and will not choose him not in ourselves. And yet Paul keeps chasing this rabbit down the hole because there's another question that, that, that just piles on one after the other. As verse 19 puts it, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? If it all comes down to the power of God and his freedom to choose, then how can he blame me? Well, I wonder how you felt as these final paragraphs of Romans 9 were read, from verse 19 through to the end. How did you feel about the idea that God is in absolute control? He has freedom to do as he wills with his creation, like a potter with their clay. What do you think? Is it fair? Actually, is it fair is is a question that's already come up in Romans. I don't know if you remember that from Romans chapter 3. There, Paul kind of, he put the question. He said, is is God fair when, when we're actually dealing with the reality that we've all been sinful, 
That just doesn't seem right. Why make it this way? Well, here he asks, is God fair? When we're confronted with the reality that we are all utterly dependent on God's mercy. And I think it's actually really helpful to note that these questions are here. Like God invites the big questions. Romans 9 has been all about asking the hard questions. Asking them and expecting that through the Bible, God will provide the answers. Now, at times, we, we might not be comfortable with the answers. We might even find ourselves a little unsatisfied by them. But God invites the questions. And the Bible keeps providing the answers. So can I encourage you, like Romans 9, keep asking them. But for now, I think, I think Paul gives us two basic answers to this really probing question. Is God fair? You see... If we're all sinful, if none of us deserve God's mercy, if it just comes down to him choosing us so that we can choose him, is that fair? His first response in verses 20 to 24 is simply to remind us who we are. Like that image of clay in the potter's hand. I don't think Paul's being rude, he's just being real. To remember who we are as creatures. That image of potter and clay is one that God used a number of times in the Old Testament. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah used it specifically. Paul's not saying something new in the Bible's view of the world. It's just that we are so used to a view of the world that puts me right at the centre. That I'm number one and I live at the centre of my universe. But the Bible teaches us that God is at the centre. We need to remember that that this breath that I take, this life that I live, the, the friends and the family that I have, every good thing that I enjoy, they are all a gift from God, dependent on Him. I am totally in His hands. So before I push back too hard, I, I do need to appropriately take stock of my situation before Him. Like potter, like, sorry, clay in the potter's hands. That's the first part. It's a sobering reminder of who we are. And the second part of Paul's response is to help us to be honest about the alternative. It's it's not that we would all be delighted to receive what we deserve. That's not actually the alternative because if justice were done, we, we wouldn't be satisfied. No, if justice were delivered without mercy, we'd be without hope. As the final verses of our of our reading sum up, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Again, Paul taking us back to the Old Testament and and two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, the kind of the quintessential examples of receiving justice without mercy. You see, it's not that it's unfair that God doesn't save everyone. It's that it is entirely his undeserved mercy that he saves anyone and Paul's point is simple no Israelite could claim to deserve God's mercy the prophets Isaiah and Isaiah who he quotes at this end of this chapter here in Romans 9 they spoke again and again about God's righteous judgment the expectation that only a remnant a small part of those who sort of carried the badge people of God were actually Only a few of them were truly the people of God, not because of their ethnicity or their religiosity, but because they trusted in the mercy of God. 
And so at one level, as Paul looked on at his friends and his family and colleagues who claimed to be the people of God yet rejected Jesus, he knew that this was not a sign that God had lost control, that that his promises couldn't be trusted. It was simply as it has always been, that none of us can lay claim to God's mercy. We can't argue that we deserve it. We can only receive it with thanksgiving. And I don't know whether you noticed it there in in verse 24 as Paul starts to wrap this line of thought up. He hints at you and me in this as well. Because he said that this related not only to those from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. That is kind of the category of everyone who's not Jews. That it relates to all those whom God has called. That his promise of mercy through faith in his kindness extends not just through the ethnic family of Abraham, but all who depend upon his mercy in Jesus. None of us can lay claim to God's mercy. It's his absolute freedom to offer it as he wishes. And he offers it in Jesus. The one who did what Paul could not do. The one who cut himself off for the sake of his people, that we would be included in the joy that was rightfully his. The one who hopped off the bus so that we could have his seat that we could never lay claim to. So over the coming weeks, Romans gets more and more practical as it helps us to think through how this changes life for us. But without jumping the gun and just dwelling on what we've heard in Romans 9, there's something very simple for us all here. And that is simply to give thanks. To give thanks that God is merciful that he is mighty to save and that he offers us hope through faith in Jesus. Before we get more practical, that's where we need to start this morning. So will you join me in praying? Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you help us to see ourselves more, more truly, to assess the situation as it really is, that apart from you we really are stuck And yet in your kindness you have made a very great promise that all who trust in Jesus will be saved. You have shown that your promises are trustworthy and true. You have shown that you are you are mighty to save, that you are powerful to reach even those who are your enemies with their backs turned against you and to bring us home into relationship with you. Please help us to see rightly that We can make no claim on your mercy, but only receive it with thanksgiving. And so we pray that you would grow us as a people who are are deeply thankful, daily appreciative of your mercy and kindness to to us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Let's start, Simon. I've got a question here. Yeah. Do you want me to use that table? I'll just chuck that there. uh, can you explain verse 25 in Hosea, this refers to Israel. Um, so if you've got your Bibles open, you might like to have a look at verse 25 of Romans chapter 9. Yeah, great. Thank you. So this is, um, as Paul's drawing at least this line of thought to, to a, a part conclusion before he continues on in chapter 10, um, basically the idea that, you know, uh, what's, what's God been doing here? Um, there are promises made to Israel. Um, but we clearly see a whole bunch of Jewish people that haven't responded to that um, 
And he makes the comment here that uh, what if he's actually going about his purposes so that um, the riches from verse 23, the riches of his glory might be made known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even, uh, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, I will call her my loved uh, one who is not my loved one. Um, uh, in Hosea, the whole prophecy that God gives Hosea is essentially about the unfaithfulness of Israel and God's faithfulness to bring them back. The unfaithfulness in the sense that um, God has declared that they're, they're, they're not really his people, they're, they're children of adultery, so to speak. Um, they're living wayward lives and yet even though by their own choice they've put themselves outside of relationship with him, God's promise through Hosea is that actually I'm going to keep calling you my people. I'm going to keep calling you my loved ones. Um, and it's right that in, in Hosea the first audience on view are the people of Israel. Um, but what God continues to unpack, and it only, it only gets hinted at in Hosea, you go to other prophets such as Isaiah and Joel and Malachi um, that unpack it even more, that this concept of Israel as the people of God um, starts to have some, some porous boundaries, that it's not just those that are genetically related to Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, but actually he's got a bigger vision of calling others in. And so that's where Paul takes it. He, he takes what was originally words from God to Israel, you're living outside of a relationship with me, I'm going to bring you home. Paul's point is, yeah, and that same promise applies to all who are outside of a relationship with God. God's going to call us home and, and, and call us his people, call us beloved. Those promises made to Abraham would be expanded beyond. Yeah, it's a great Thank you. We'll, just take, we'll do one more. Yeah. Um, Simon's around for the next couple of weeks, so if there are other questions, we'll get other times to ask, yeah. ask them. But uh, this question says, our society is seemingly obsessed with the notion of fairness. Mm. How do we answer people who see God's choice in showing mercy to whoever he chooses as capricious? Yeah. I think that's a great question because it actually, it just keeps working with the basic idea of Romans 9. That's essentially the question that's being asked there. Is God unfair? Is he capricious? Is this just arbitrary on a whim? Um, I think we feel the tension of that because we feel like actually we have some sense of merit. And so it's a little bit like, someone else described this for me um, a few weeks ago and I thought that's a really challenging image but a helpful one. We kind of imagine that we're all puppies at the pound and God's gone along to choose one of us out and he's sort of made, made this capricious idea that I like that one, not that one. Um, because all of the puppies are adorable. Um, but I actually wonder whether we'd feel that God was being so capricious if we pictured that he had uh, a, a pack of ravaging wolves who are all baying for his blood and he says, I'm going to work on this one. They're all against me, but I'm going to choose to show love to this one that, that wants nothing to do with me. So it's his freedom. Uh, he chooses as he chooses. But within that, I think it's not capricious so much as kindness that none of us are deserving of. Um, I brought some books up because I appreciate that what we've been unpacking here digs into some really tough stuff um, and these are the books that are down on the table there. If you'd like to think more uh, about 
that idea of God choosing and, and, and its fairness and its rightness and its rationality, there's a super uh, easy to read um, and only $5 overview of that. If you're thinking through how does that actually relate um, to the sharing of the gospel, because if it's all God's work, then what of us sharing it with others? Uh, evangelism and the sovereignty of God works with that. If you're kind of thinking, I'm just keen to understand more of how the Bible fits together to paint this picture of who God is and what his purposes are, God's big picture does that. And if you're just thinking, actually, some really helpful devotional readings in light of what we've been thinking about, because our world, well, we just so often take it for granted uh, that God is merciful and kind. There's a couple of other books there that, that both challenge and encourage us in that. Um, they'll be around over the next few weeks, but I hope they're encouraging reading, because you shouldn't feel like we've got to the end of Romans 9 and, oh, we've stitched it all up. That was pretty straightforward, wasn't it? There's plenty to chew on moving forward. Thanks, Carl.